Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Al Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we are now on our seventh year. Don't ask me how that all just flew by, but it did. Man, time moves fast. And it's only because of you, the listeners. If you'd like us to stick around another seven years, and there's a few simple things you can do that would really, really help us out. I would endlessly appreciate if you would, number one, share our episodes with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me at Audio and at URM Academy and, of course, our guest. And number three, leave us reviews and five-star reviews wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, Thank you for all the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way. All we ask in return is a share, a post, and tag us. Oh, and one last thing. Do you have a question you would like me to answer on an episode? I don't mean for a guest. I mean for me. It can be about anything. Email it to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. There's no dot com on that. It's exactly the way I spelled it. And use the subject line, answer me al. All right, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the URM podcast. My guest today is Morgoth Beats, who is a Grammy-nominated producer, musician, engineer, and songwriter. He started out playing with his band Goliath. Then he was picked up by Winds of Plague to play guitar with them. Combined with an interest in production, it really wasn't long before he became a household name in the metal and hip-hop production scenes. Some of his clients include Bones, Juice World, Polyphia of Sulphur, Travis Barker, MGK, Suicide Silence, and many more. Let's do this. Morgoth, welcome back to the URM podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been, what, like two years? Yeah, I think about two years. Yeah, lots happened. Yeah, it's been going good. I can't complain. It's been a good two years. It was already going good, though, last time we spoke. Seems like it. The trajectory has only gotten steeper in an upwards direction, which is awesome. Yeah, definitely. I'm very grateful. It's been been going really good the last two years, especially. Any of it a surprise? Nothing really surprises me at this point. I've already like kind of passed the expectations I had for myself a while ago, so everything has just kind of been a plus. Now it's just in bonus territory. Yeah, it just feels like it's bonus territory, so it's great. Yeah, I saw your posts, pictures of you with Korn in the studio, and Korn's one of my favorite bands of all time, so that's just cool. That's not a surprise. You know, that was one of those things where one thing kind of leads to another, and you just kind of hope that the one thing you're doing will lead to the best outcome at the end of it. And it just kind of worked out that way where this funny story with the corn thing is just our other guitar player, Davey, who is playing and wins with me for a little bit. He ended up playing keyboard for corn for a while as like their live keyboard player. And that was how I got to meet the band and Jonathan and all them. And Jonathan wanted me to make some music with his son. Yeah, I remember that. That's right. Yeah. 
they're just starting the process of making new music and uh, they wanted to have some elements of production and stuff like that. And just so I luckily, it's convenient for them to have me do it. So I just uh, have been able to the ball rolling on collaborating, how like deep the collaboration is going to go and how much is going to be and all that stuff, you know, is very, very beginning of stuff. So can't really like divulge too much about like their album or anything like that. But yeah, we just started working on some ideas together and uh yeah it's pretty amazing i just yeah they're one of my favorite bands too so it's really cool to be in a room you know like spitting ideas back and forth with them with for music just you know with the whole band and pretty fucking wild man and i do think that that's interesting the one thing leads to another because i do remember on the last episode you had just worked with John Davis's son yeah right like that was what was happening so it's very interesting now Two years later, here we are doing this again, and anyone who heard that one now hear where that progressed to you actually working with Corn. To me, that's a really good example of how networking is a bad word, but that to me is a good example of how it actually works in real life. It's not this like sleazy shit that people do at NAM where they're punishing <laughs> each other. It's more like you know somebody who introduces you to somebody else and like you work with them on something that's like low friction or low impact or whatever. Like, you know, you're doing something for somebody's kid or whatnot. It's a bunch of those little things over time that end up leading to the really cool stuff. Not that working with his kid isn't the really cool stuff, but what I mean is like, it's a bunch of those little things doing a great job at those things that some people might fuck around on, but not fucking around on them, always doing the best job possible so that every little thing that comes up can progress to the next thing that's a little bigger or one more step forward. And I think that when people think of networking, they think of this thing where you're like punishing people with business cards or like hitting them up relentlessly and just selling yourself like a streetwalker or something, and that's not it at all. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think that's also one of those things where, uh, you know, like manifesting really comes into play where people think it's one of those things where you just sit there and think about something you want a lot and then it just kind of falls in your lap and that's not really how that works. It's more strategic planning in some way. Like, it's not like I knew that, you know, by working with his son or anything like was going to lead to me having anything to do with corn definitely up the chances yeah exactly it's just yeah take those opportunities seriously and you know we just became friends because he's he's just a cool dude outside of being in corn you know uh He's just kind of someone who's been really cool to me and someone I can ask for advice from and someone who you know has supported me and who pays attention to what I do. So, you know, I I was hoping the call would come one day that maybe I would get to do something in some capacity for the band because, you know, that's what the best outcome of those scenarios are. And I've just found that that's happened to me multiple times in my life. And so whenever the little opportunities and windows come up for me to work in capacity next to people who I want to work with, I... uh, try and take advantage of it, you know, and and take the opportunity seriously, not overthink it too much or overanalyze it. Let it be like organic, you know, because I feel like this is an organic thing, like, because we've developed a, a friendship relationship. So 
me just getting even to have an opinion on like what I think of the new music that they're just working on is it's a surreal thing. You know, it's like a humbling, surreal thing because they were probably the first other than music that my like I was shown by like my dad, you know, which was like early metal stuff like Sabbath and Ozzy and stuff like that. But the first time I remember listening to something that was current that was going on like right now when I was a kid was corn like being and so it's pretty cool you know yeah and look even if you didn't work with them you made a really cool friend out of it so it's kind of like the way that I've always looked at the whole networking thing is that if I get to work with somebody that's a bonus I'm happy to just be friends with somebody and most of the people that I've been friends with for a long time. Eventually we end up working together maybe in some capacity or it ends up where there will be a situation where a good word from them can help with something else. And that's awesome. But like most of the time it's just based on us having a legitimate friendship and it doesn't have to be, it's not a friendship like we talk every single day or something like that, but we're friends and for a while. And usually those, those relationships, the longer they go, the more fruitful they become over time. A for instance is Riff Hard just put out the Zach Wild course. I've known Blasco since 2007 when Doth did Ozfest. That's when I met him. We've like worked together on and off. Like he managed me for like a year when I was producing bands. I kept in touch with him. We've stayed friends. Like we had a, one project in 2014 that just didn't work out. Like we've done a bunch of stuff off and on, but most of it has just been like, we're kind of friends. We don't talk every day or anything like that. Yeah, totally. Yeah, but we're buddies. And that's why it eventually led to, there was finally an actual good reason for us to work, work together, which was Zach doing a course with us. But it took over a decade decade and a half really to get to that point. So I feel like that's the perfect example. If I had punished him or been impatient or anything, like it wouldn't have worked out. Um, it worked out because I've literally this whole time been cool with just being friends. That's what I was just hoping for. You know, it's, you got to kind of lead by example too, and just show the person that you're working hard and diligent and like you're earning it, you know? So I think I'd done that enough with Jonathan where, um, I had proven myself to him to at least a point where, you know, I get to work on a, a little bit of their music with them with, for this, you know, how far that that's going to go at the moment. Like it's still is a brand new thing for me, this project, you know, on top of like a handful of other projects I've, I've been working on. But yeah, it was just, you know, he just follows up with me. And um, luckily, I've been doing some pretty awesome stuff recently to where, you know, they need someone to do this this job. So luckily, he thought of me to at least give it a shot. So it's something, you know, I'm taking definitely very seriously. I'm putting my best foot forward within trying my hardest at it, you know, to not fumble the opportunity. So yeah, it's been great. I'm still kind of in awe with it, you know. So you recently produced a new Polyphia track, the one that features Snot. Yes. The band is pushing all kinds of boundaries artistically. I mean, Korn, Polyphia, with MGK, like of Sulfur. It's just like such a variety of genres that 
you work with. I mean, I guess you could all say that it's all heavy music, but every one of those projects is just vastly different. They couldn't be more different. So when you work with corn versus polyphia versus of sulfur, like versus MGK, like, do you approach it differently? Or is it just, you're in a room with people, people you like, and uh, you're trying to make music together? I approach it slightly differently in terms of I am mindful of the sound that the band or artist is going for. I try and put myself in the headspace of like pulling those influences out and stuff. But more than anything, I'm just a fan of music overall. So I feel like I can just kind of pull into my little bag of tricks where I can uh, apply those influences into whatever it's doing. So like with Polyphia, you know, I knew the objective of it was basically like their process is different than each each one's process is a little different, you know, where Polyphia, their, that song kind of started out as like a beat. And luckily, I know Snot because my friend Jake is his manager and I used to produce his old metalcore band like 10 years ago or so. I was able to get Snot and Polyphia to work together via that. And when it came to doing the song, yeah, it just... Uh, it just worked out that way where, you know, Snot gave us a, a song that he didn't. He was like, I, I made this, but I think this would be good for you guys. And we just made the instrumental around it. So that was different than, uh, say, like Of Sulfur, where I just produced their upcoming debut album. That was much more from like the ground up, you know, like they would send me pre-pro demo ideas and I would like make some alterations and some changes. And, you know, I did all the orchestration for the album and helped write all the vocals. So that was like really, really hands-on versus like with MGK, I that was like I had already made the instrumental, me and my friend KJ had made an instrumental just I'll make a lot of music just to like stack up to have for those sort of situations. Luckily in that scenario, like that night I was just we were I was hanging out with him at his house and the opportunity came for me to play him some stuff to make a song together and I just I knew that instrumental was going to be something that he liked. So I played it for him and yeah, sure enough, we just wrote the song right there. So it's all different, but music has a lot more in common than I think people realize. It's all just like patterns and notes, you know, and like what type of sound you use, like for the drums or what type of tone you use on the guitar or what kind of riff you're doing. Like, yeah, it's different, but there's a lot of things in common that you can take from one place and apply it to like a different genre, you know? It's different, but the reason that I'm that I'm bringing it up is I know it's the same, you know it's the same, it's just music, but a lot of listeners here who are also like URM subscribers have a really hard time, for instance, when we have nail the mixes that are different. Like if you have one month is like, deathcore, like all out deathcore, like shadow of intent or something. And then the next month you've got something like, I don't know, Opeth or something where it's like all natural and like Opethy. a lot of, and you know, that's, I'm just pulling those examples out of my ass. Like could have been, you know, shadow of intent and then fallout boy the next month. Just people have a real hard time with that. And you'll notice that like, they'll take everything that they did for the shadow of intent month and try it on fallout boy or something. And it just, it doesn't work at all. Like, because they're thinking in this very narrow box and 
not altering their tactics, I guess. They're sticking to very similar tactics for very different situations. Whereas I think even though, yeah, it is just music, you're just really, you're just trying to get something that feels and sounds good that everybody in the room likes. But if you just keep using the same tactics over and over and over, that shit ain't going to work. That shit ain't going to fly. So there has to be something different in your approach. Even if your strategy is the same of like, I'm going to vibe with the artist, figure out what their, what the objective is. Think of what the influences are for the track, et cetera, all that stuff. Still, it's probably going to end up being different tactics to get a sound Polyphia likes versus a sound that MGK likes. Yeah, totally. A big trick of it too, I've found that like, I think is the the best thing for, especially when you're working with multiple different genres, multiple different styles, especially on, on this level, you know, where it's like, you know, a lot of people are going to hear this. So it, it's definitely something you, you have to take seriously. Yeah, don't fuck up. <laughs> yeah. If you can work with people who are better than you at this sort of stuff, you will grow a lot quickly like with the mgk thing you know i had travis to to replay the drums i program what a team <laughs> over there just again like next to corn was blank for me like very so you know it's just unreal like because he's just one of my favorite drummers ever so having travis's input on it it was, it was amazing you know and when working with multiple different genres it's just really understanding like what sounds like make the genre, like what makes the genre, like learn the rules so you can break them. You know, like if you know, like, okay, this, these are the things that kind of make the genre I'm working in for this project. Like for the Polyphia thing, the goal was essentially to have it still have like the kind of modern, like trap drum element, but performed by clay, you know? So like they used really small symbols and stuff in order to keep that like sound similar to how it was in the demo where, you know, with MGK, the vibe of that was to make a much more like natural sounding like pop punk song, you know, like so far, you know, with like of sulfur, it's, it's a little different where it's like the goal is to make a very heavy, modern symphonic deathcore thing. So yeah, the approach changes because you have to know the genre you're working in. You have to know the end goal, but you have to know how to get there. And that is something, you know, you can teach, but it's also something you just have to, you have to rely on your taste, you know, more than anything. You have to trust your taste. Yes. Can we talk about that? Because you just said something that I tell people all the time that I'm not sure people understand what I mean by that. But to me, like a producer, really a mixer, a producer, a songwriter, anything at the end of the day, since there's actually no rules to any of this, and you're creating something that didn't exist before, and all we have is words to describe things, and that's not accurate, right? I tell you an idea I have in my head, and you start thinking about that idea as I say it. Whatever you're hearing in your head is not the same thing that I'm hearing. It's impossible for you to actually hear what I mean. This concept breaks bands up all the time. Yeah, exactly. So you're going to have to just like make something, right? And in order to know, is it good or is it bad? Like, is this what they're asking for? Like, is this going to work? You don't fucking know. And so the only thing you have is trust in your tastes. Like, do you trust your own instincts, and your own tastes? Like when you say, I think this is good. 
do you trust yourself? You have to be able to trust yourself. And if you don't, it means you need to refine your tastes and learn how to trust them and develop better taste, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like what you were saying where when it comes down to it with, especially in like multi-collaborative situations, I've, I've found like when working with bands or like even just multiple people on the same project, a lot of times like the theory of what you think something should sound like versus like what it actually is in practice can be a really like dicey thing to discuss with people sometimes, especially in band situations where it's like if you're if you're saying I want this song to be like this band mixed with that band mixed with this mixed with that. In your head, that might sound a certain way, but in the other person's head, that might sound completely different. And that might like, you might totally just be on complete opposite ends on like the theory of what you think something should sound like versus when you actually like demo the idea out or and like show the person be like, see, this is what I was talking about. And they might be like, well, that's not what you described at all. You know, or in your head, you're like, that's exactly what I described. But like the theory of what you think something should sound like versus what it actually sound like, it can be thin sometimes so yeah in these sort of situations I definitely like to talk like oh I like this band too I like this artist too you know and we like kind of relate on that level but you know usually it's just like comes down to actually printing the ideas out and actually making the ideas happen it comes down to the actual music at the end of the day what you said about this breaks bands up all the time it also gets producers and mixers fired all the time I think that at the end of the day you got to make music and nothing is going to be better than actually presenting an idea in musical form. And so I know lots of producers who have this policy where if they have a suggestion and say they're working with an artist that's not good at improvising, like, you know, there's some drummers, for instance, that you work with. And this does, doesn't mean that one is better than the other. There's different. There's some drummers where you can be like, hey, change that fill up try to do something more like this and they'll just do it. Others where you say that and it's like dropping a grenade on the creative process. Like basically you just ask them to bump their head into a brick wall and that's it. You're not going to have any progress for several hours because they don't think like that and they could be great drummer either way. So I know lots of producers whose policy is, Unless they're working with that type of artist who can just give them an idea and they just go, that they'll come up with their ideas on their own time after the session and play it for the artist the next day or ask for the room, be like, hey, can you guys uh, give me an hour? I want to work something out. I want to present it to you. You don't have to go with it. Let me just like try it and, uh, you know, Take a lunch break or some shit. Because if you're just like, hey, I have this idea. I want to add this orchestral thing, but it's not going to be like a traditional orchestral thing. It's going to be like if you combine Demu, but you make it more like uh, like if Demu existed in 1940. And it's like, what's that supposed to mean? Just do it and then let them hear it. And if they like what it sounds like. Then they can be like, oh, this sounds like this and that. Totally. Yeah, like what you were saying earlier with... Uh presenting your ideas that's that's a big part of of my process is um being able to like present the idea even beforehand if possible like I, I definitely write from scratch with artists a lot but I try and just make as much music as I can all the time 
just for the instance that you, in case one day you're working on something from scratch and even if it's like a big opportunity or something and you're just not nailing it in the small amount of time you have, you at least have other ideas that you can cycle through, you know, and then it gives the artists like options. That's common in all types of music, you know, versus like band stuff and solo artist stuff, you know, it's, it's very similar. Yeah. So I think, I think in terms of what we were talking about earlier with like the multi-genre thing, I've definitely just found more than anything from it, that music has a lot more in common across genre lines than it does differences. And when I kind of realized that, you know, it's kind of also like, I'm a, I'm a big fan of like Rick Rubin and like, you know, that sort of genreless sort of approach to a producer and just kind of trying to make what's best for that. So I real definitely realized at a certain point where I can take stuff I know from one genre and apply it to other places. Like for like a specific example of that, like when I, when I make like hip hop beats or something, my hi-hat patterns are very influenced from like death metal kick drum patterns because the staccato, like staccato 16th note like you know triplet thing it's like they're essentially the same patterns that will be going on in both genres it's just on a mm-hmm. different instrument being played but the patterns are very similar so like i'm very influenced like by you know like decapitated like kick patterns and stuff and i'll try and apply that to like my hi-hat programming in terms of like rap or I'll be very influenced by like heavy breakdown stuff, you know, say like like Meshuggah patterns when it comes to 808 patterns on like hip hop beats. So I'll take like the way I would write like a heavy, low, like breakdown pattern. Same thing. It's just I'm just using a different sound for it. So you, if you can like pinpoint specifics on where you can uh, take one thing from one place and apply it in another place, that's kind of where you find like originality, I think. Totally. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up 
and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. One of many things cool that Slipknot did is on the breakdown in Psychosocial. So I've noticed there's something about when Slipknot does a breakdown, it feels different than when other bands do breakdowns. And I was trying to figure out why. But not that other bands don't do good breakdowns. Lots of bands do great breakdowns. But there's something about Slipknots that just feel, well, like Slipknot and like have that like explosive momentum thing. Like Slipknot just has this momentum to their music. So I analyzed it because that psychosocial breakdown is fucking awesome. Like, why does it feel that way? Because it's a da-dun, 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 you know, it's not, it's not like some crazy rhythm. So I was like, I know what it is. It's because their percussionists are playing just, it's either straight eighths or sixteenths. So they're doing what double kick would have been doing while Joey's doing the breakdown pattern on the kicks. So you're getting both the breakdown, but also the momentum of a steady eighth note double kick pattern, except it's on the percussion instruments instead of the kick. So you get that momentum. And it's the same thing that a shaker adds in a pop chorus or something when it's just doing constant eighths or sixteenths or something. That's the same thing that double bass, like steady double bass adds to metal is momentum. It's very interesting to me when you take these, these rhythmic elements that are typically done on one instrument and just you move them over to another instrument, it gives things just a different kind of life. Yeah, totally. Those sort of things are what will make something just a different genre. Yep. That's kind of what I meant. What I mean by music has more similarities than differences is sometimes it's just that, that easy. You know, sometimes it is just being like, Oh, I'm, I really like the way, you know, this drummer does these kind of fills. Like say it's like, I like, uh, Chad from like Red Hot Chili Peppers does fills and you can apply that into your metal band. And then all of a sudden there's something a little more unique about your band, you know? Yeah, totally. That's uh there's a book I read I think during the pandemic year called Where Good Ideas Come From. Great book. I actually did an episode, I think with Jesse Cannon about it because Jesse is who told me to read it. I believe we did a podcast episode about it. I did so many podcasts in 2020 mm-hmm. that I could be wrong. But anyhow, I, I recommend it for anybody who is into understanding how new genres are, are made. The big idea in the book, which I agree with, is that the way that good ideas happen, which is exactly what you just said, is that two things are combined that were not combined before to make a new thing. It's got to be two things that work, that work really, really well, and they're combined in a way that uh, no one thought of before. The additive effect, it just creates something new. And he just kind of went through and in the book shows how this is true through evolution, like he was explaining, all the way from a coral reef to how new genres of music are made to the way technology evolves. It's just a, like almost say it's a law of nature, but I've noticed it makes a lot of sense. Right. And it's just ideas, but I've noticed too, in my own writing that the most interesting stuff that I've come up with has been that when there's two things put together that didn't go together before. And it's not always conscious either. Some of it is just, you have these influences, right? You have these influences they mix in your subconscious 
and they come out a certain way, which is, again, kind of goes back to the having good taste thing. Feed those tastes. If you only feed those tastes one type of thing, you're probably only going to come out with one type of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. That's, that's, uh, I gotta, I'm gonna have to read that. That sounds like a, a really good book. That's great. I, Steven Johnson. Totally. It's a, yeah, it's a simple principle, but yeah, it's, it's very true. The thing that that actually kind of resonated with me the most with, like when you were saying it is I was pretty early, not saying I invented this or I was just among an early group of people who did start the whole like trap metal thing, you know, that me and um, this artist Omen Thirteen, who uh, he, he's he's pretty he's a pretty big rapper, you know. Um, and yeah, we made a, a song where we just actually flipped a Goliath uh, sample, like that was like a breakdown pattern we had, and we just we weren't the first to add heavy guitars. Probably there's probably an earlier example somewhere, but it was very early, and it was one of those things when we were making it. I was like, oh, this I don't think I've heard anything like this. And didn't know it was going to become a whole thing. But sure enough, you know, enough like-minded people, you know, had similar ideas. And that just kind of snowballed into a whole style of music, you know, where, uh, yeah, I think it's usually, usually takes like a group of people with a similar influence at like the right time. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, there's been, there's been some studies about that too, because oftentimes it's weird it's a little, it makes a little more sense now in the internet age but also you have a lot of examples of people in different parts of the world coming up with a similar idea musically uh people that didn't interact with each other but it's almost like music uh and art it like evolves into a it all it wants to evolve, and there are people who are on that wavelength at the exact same time. Those are the people that I think bring a genre into the world. Yeah, another an interesting example was too to watch was the uh, was the MGK thing, where you know I know a lot of a lot of rock fans get upset about like this claim or anything, but no one's saying that he invented pop punk or anything like that. No one that obviously, but it wasn't in mainstream music and it wasn't done quite the same way until him and Travis like decided to make a whole album like that. That was a hybrid of like modern emo rap and, uh, and like pop punk and it worked amazingly. And it was a lot of it, the timing because kids had had, emo rap for about like seven years or so now. So like a whole generation at that point was already, their ears were already tuned to hearing those kind of vocals and that was kind of like guitar playing. The only thing that was really different is like the acoustic full-time drums. And even then, like some of those like trap drum elements are still like laced in there. So it was like kind of a perfect storm of timing for him with that. And there's lots of other bands, you know, who had been keeping that scene alive for a long time. The whole Warped Tour bands, like the Source of Far and State Champs and all that sort of stuff. And all those bands definitely deserve credit. But it's a different conversation when you're talking about like mainstream music, you know, versus mm-hmm. like successful underground music. If people didn't react so strongly to it, you know, it wouldn't have the same effect. So, you know, no one's saying he invented anything different, but even being there and being like very much, you know, from me producing with Juice World and Little Xan and Bones and all that stuff, like I've been doing the emo rap thing for a long time and that scene, he was just the first one to go full on and make a whole album like that. 
and that a lot of that was timing, you know, like like you're saying, mm-hmm. like it was just it was just that time where kids were ready for it. You know, if it had happened five years before that, it wouldn't have worked out because the youth like ears wouldn't be as accustomed to hearing that style, you know, of singing and stuff. So it takes it takes time, like for whatever the big underground style of music is is going to boil over eventually to be like the mainstream style of music. It's almost like a law. Can't wait till black metal is top 40. Right. Never going to happen. Yeah, but you know, you know, you never know. It could be some influenced like on something top 40. But it, I I just mean like whenever something becomes the biggest form of underground music, eventually it'll probably boil over to be mainstream music. In some way, shape, or form, yeah. Yeah, it might be an evolved version of it. It might not be like the true form of it that like people in the underground loved it for, but it's a pretty safe bet. Yeah, in some way. And I think it's interesting that like people will hate on whoever got the most popular with it, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who did it one month before somebody else or three months before somebody else. What really matters is who did the public resonate with? Because contrary to popular belief, you can't buy that stuff. You, you can't manufacture the public's reaction. Absolutely not. No, that's a complete, that's the one thing that no one has any control over. Music would look a lot different if you could do that. Sure would. If people could actually buy, like legit buy people's perception of it, there's, you wouldn't have, music would be very stale, like very, very stale. And to some yep. people, I know they'd be like, oh, pop's all stale, blah, blah. But if you think pop stale, like if you actually could see what like execs wish music would in the direction music would go, you'd think the pop stuff out now is like the most artistic stuff ever. That's absolutely true. That's why the whole industry plant uh, conversation, I think is so silly because... Yeah. Okay. Look, so some people might have been born into families in the industry, or there's even some cases where someone assembles a group of people together and tries to have a project, but none of that matters because that's happened plenty of times and it's failed. It's happened more times when it's failed is you can't buy the public's response. Yeah. Especially the the age in which we live in now too, People really choose what's popular now more so than ever when, because now, you know, with social media and everything, you know, you make a song, post it on TikTok and enough people like it and respond to it, then the industry and all the A&Rs, all they're doing now is like, they just chase that. Like they just are in a constant chase to finding what's like resonating with people when before they would actually dictate what people heard. Like they were, had much more control on what the average person's going to hear every day. Nowadays, I really think since like the SoundCloud movement, or really MySpace even, was just a game changer in that, you know, where people now pick what's popular and then the industry kind of has to follow that. Sure, they have stuff that they present to people and like really shove in people's face. And if it's good enough to resonate with people, then it will resonate and it'll be bigger than it would have otherwise. But all the time they try and shove stuff in people's face and it doesn't resonate and it doesn't work. 
that's that happens way more often than uh, something working. Oh yeah, the majority of stuff that's put out and pushed by labels fails. Yeah, I don't think people realize that. No, they don't. It's staggering. If you want to see what what we're talking about, just go to any label's website and look at their past artists. That list is always going to be any label that's been around. Just look at their past artists. You will see a graveyard basically. Yep. Absolutely. And those are the ones they list. I know for a fact, I've gone, I've done this. I've gone on several websites for prominent labels and looked at their uh, alumni page. The graveyard doesn't even include all of the bodies. Like not all the bands are even listed. Yep. Success in music is a very, very rare thing. I compare it a lot to like a pilot on TV actually turning into a show. It's a miracle enough, apparently, for a pilot to get made, but for a pilot to actually turn into a show, and I don't mean a successful show, just a show, period, a show that actually gets made and gets any episodes. Apparently, according to people who work in that world, I don't work in that world, so I'm just quoting them, they say shows almost never get made. We're not talking about good or bad, just period. They just almost never get made. And then out of the ones that do get made, no one no one gets to pick which ones the public are going to latch onto. Yeah, exactly. And that's good to know in any field really is that goes back to the taste thing. Is your taste like aligned with what people are feeling? And that's kind of where I've found like six I try and keep my ear to like the ground like at least a little bit, you know. I try and constantly work with newer artists who I think are have potential, who I think are talented, have the drive and all that stuff to make it because you'll get a lot further in, in this industry by proving you have good taste by the outcomes of smaller artists that you're working with. Like me working with Juice World and MGK and, you know, uh, you know, I got to work a lot on this new Suicide Silence album that's about to come out. Which is so... Awesome, by the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I've, another again, another one of my close favorite bands, so I'm very excited about that. But, like, those artists don't need me. Like, they are already them. Like, I'm just adding to what they make, you know, and I'm the lucky one in these scenarios. But if, you know, I blow an artist up from, like, zero, that does a lot more for you because you're proving that you can take something from a smaller place and move it to a place where people care, you know? And so I would always recommend for, for newer producers, you know, what people ask me advice, like, how do I work? You know, how do I work with corn or how do I work with, you know, I work with like Sid from Slipknot a lot and I'm doing a Shavo from system of a downs solo album right now. Maybe we mentioned that. I mentioned that to you before. You, you told me we've talked about it, but not on here, but, I mean, I know you are. Yeah. If you can prove that you can take something from a smaller place and yet make it to a, uh, make it bigger, then people will take you a lot more seriously. So it's good to, you know, when people ask me like, how do I work with these bigger artists? I'm like, well, that's cool that you want to work with bigger artists, but really you should kind of look around you and build up with someone mm -hmm. or a band, whatever it is you're trying to do. And grow with them because if they grow, you grow. That's how you work with bigger artists. I would tell people there's two ways. If you can invent a third, uh, like another way, cool. But there's basically two paths. Path one is you get a gig interning and then assisting 
underneath somebody that's already working with the types of artists you want to work with. You prove yourself through that. And path number two is you work with an artist that gets bigger and you get known for that. You can do both. I think that's the best is um, while you're working underneath somebody and learning and making connections, you're also working with your own artists and helping them grow. Those are the paths. That's pretty much how you make it as a producer. There's a third one, which is also you have your own band. You get known for that or a YouTube channel and you get known for that. Like you have your own music and you get known for making it sound really good, whether it's a band or YouTube channel or Twitch stream, whatever. And then people hire you for that, hire you to make their stuff sound good. So, okay, so there's three paths. That's it. Basically, it's like pick one or two or three and combine them. But that's basically how it works. If you're like, for instance, if you live in the middle of Iowa and you don't know anybody, you're not willing to move and you're probably not going to be able to work underneath somebody. Then you have to pick maybe the YouTube one is more realistic for you. I'm saying this because some people will be like, well, I'm in the middle of nowhere and I'm not moving to L.A. What do I do? Am I out of luck? It's like, no, you're not out of luck. There's a way to make it happen regardless, but it's pretty much got to be one of those three ways or a combination of those three ways. And But like a bigger artist, why I get asked that all the time. It's like, ask yourself, put yourself in the bigger artist's shoes. Why would they work with you? If when they are working with you, like there's a reason for why they're working with you. It's like you just said, they don't need you. So why, why would they work with you? And if you can't answer that, you should probably work on being able to answer that. Like, do you know why these bigger artists work with you? For me personally, I definitely think I bring a perspective to the table, like in terms of being able to do multiple genres. And I think a lot of people respect that. I try and showcase my strengths. I'm an okay guitar player. Like I can, in terms of maybe in the prog world or like working with like Tim from Polyphia and stuff like that will definitely humble you to make you feel like, oh, I can barely play the instrument. That's like comparing yourself to an Olympic athlete. Yeah, I think at this point, I've just developed a diverse enough resume to where I can get someone at least somewhat interested from most different styles of music now, or at least they'll they'll want to hear what I what I make. So there's a reason they're coming to you, right? Like it's not just out of nowhere. There's your resume, strengths you bring. You've got something that they think could help them out. Yeah, exactly. At least explore if it could help them out. Yeah, and a lot of it too has become like my songwriting ability and my like production ability. I have examples I can show people. You know, even if you have any examples, it's very helpful, you know, to where even if it's you like say, you know, if you want to be a, a producer like of any capacity, like I was saying, like I make instrumentals on my own all the time. If you can do that and you showcase that on the internet, like on YouTube or TikTok or whatever, at least at that point you have examples to show people. Like if you don't have any examples of your work to show anyone, like nowadays that just doesn't fly. You know, you just, it's just not going to work for you if that's the case. You have to be able to showcase your work in some capacity. So it is a networking game in a lot of ways. A lot of things when it comes to the entertainment industry is somewhat strategic. Like, you know, the way what we were talking about with corn earlier, like it was like A plus B equals C sort of thing. That applies in a, like 
almost every facet. If you can find a way, if you want to work with someone, you got to like strategically think how you can get there. And a lot of times it's working with people around them. Like if you want to produce for someone a much more realistic way to produce for them usually is to work with their producers. If you're a really good guitar player or something like that, like this is a way I've gotten into doing a lot of stuff is I'm like, okay, I'll make a bunch of ideas on guitar and this producer doesn't play guitar like that. So say the artist wants like guitar-based stuff, like I can be like, oh, here's some guitar ideas. Now, collaboration is everything in in my opinion in this world. Like if you can be like a, a maverick trailblazer, do everything on your own and stuff, more power to you. But I found what has really improved me the most as, as a producer is working with people who are better than me in certain aspects. Like I got a lot better at, you know, drums and I've gotten a lot better at mixing and stuff like that by working next to people who are better than me at it. And like being able to like humble yourself and recognize that this person has a skill set that you don't have and you should probably sit there and like digest what they're doing and like really pay attention while you guys are working will get you really far. Even if it's say like I've learned a lot from guitar players who aren't as like technically capable as me, but they can write a catchy guitar riff oh, like all the time. And I'll be like, how, how can I channel that? You know, I'll try and like pick up little pieces from people all over the place and they don't have to be big producers. Like it can be like some kid who's never done anything before. But if I see, like if I work with him or I'm in the studio with someone like that and I can see that this person is exceptional at something, I'll sit back and I don't, I don't care what they've done or haven't done. Like if they're good at what they're doing, I'll try and pick up something from them because it's just adding tools to your you know arsenal on what you can apply. So speaking of tools, you do orchestral stuff in your production work where you mix a lot of instruments from different companies in your stacks, which uh, makes a lot of sense. Actually, I, I don't know if you know Jesse Zaretti or not. He's in my band, and but also what he really does in real life is he composes for like Marvel and Netflix and yeah. does all kinds of shit like that. He does this. He He blends sounds from multiple libraries. He's told me that, that that's how you get fake orchestras to start to sound way more real yep. and way better is when you start to blend them, which makes a lot of sense because in real life, the reason that things sound real is because of the imperfections of tones between each other. The differences between the string players in the room, that's what gives something its character. I just want to talk a little bit about what you do to try to get your orchestrations to sound a little more realistic and not so plastic. The biggest thing I've really stumbled upon more recently, um, which uh, I got for doing this, uh, the Shavo album that I, I was just telling you about the, from uh, System of Down, like I'm doing his solo album right now. The vibe of it is like to sound like System-esque, like, but more modern and heavy with more of a like production and orchestration backgrounds, like sort of vibe to it. I got this thing called a jam stick, which is a uh, MIDI controller guitar where it plays just like a normal guitar, but it plugs in via MIDI. So you can use it like you do any other MIDI, uh, inch, like any inch, instrument, like, you know, again, like a keyboard would, but you, it's a guitar. I want to be looking at this while you're talking about it. Ooh, this looks cool. All right, tell me about it. So I did all the orchestration on the of Sulphur album that's about to come out on this thing too, where I can just 
play like I would the riff, but now on this MIDI controller to where I can add all sorts of human elements like vibrato to the strings. I can add bends, you know, like this thing is actually crazy and it's taken my ability to make more realistic orchestrations to the next level because of the fact that like guitars and strings have a lot in common. So when like I'm doing like a violin line or something like that, I can really like, I can really like get the uh, vibrato right to where I can't really do that as well on like a MIDI keyboard, you know, like it's a lot harder to nail that. I have a question. Okay. So I have MIDI pickups built into several of my guitars not like the aftermarket kind, mm-hmm. like they're built into the saddles. Oh. And like that Iceman and stuff has the saddle built ones. And even that, which is considered the good way or was considered the good way of doing it, is still not super accurate. So I'm wondering, this jam stick, is it like the future version of... It's the best thing I've ever come across with it, where there is a couple imperfections here and there, like... In terms of if you like lift your finger up or something like that, it might perceive like a dead note as a note. Uh, yeah. And sometimes the pitch information will be a little wonky where, but it's as simple as just going in and deleting the pitch bend information. So it can act just like a MIDI controller. And you have to go in and delete a couple of the, um, a couple of the dead notes that it'll add from like if you move the sh- like your finger on the string a certain way. That's not a big deal. Not at all. It's it's very painless. So it's the best thing I've found so far for that. So that's as of recently in terms of like adding to my arsenal on top of layering lots of different orchestral elements from different plugins and also you got to kind of have intent behind it too. You got to do have some knowledge of what players from an orchestra would do like what role certain instruments have i'm a big fan of horns but if there's like a guitar line or something say i'm trying to follow that's like fast horns usually don't play like really fast like lines you know usually they're more of like the held out sort of instrument like that does legato things so i'll have be like okay so i'm gonna have the horns follow the chord progression with the guitars along with like the lower string elements and then i'll have like the pizzicato like the harp or like synth whatever it is you know follow the main lines so it's just kind of like separating the instruments like that like with the of sulfur album you know there's i dang near had like a hundred tracks on every song to try and get these things because, you know, the references are like Dimu and like Satanist era, Behemoth and that sort of thing where it's like the closest thing I can get to doing that is you have to sometimes go kind of ridiculous with it and stack as much as you can to get it to sound to a place that's realistic. And sometimes that's as easy as just like copying the MIDI from one uh, software thing to another, you know, like it's, you don't have to replay everything every time. It's just, it's sound design, you know, dude, this thing looks awesome. Every person, every person I've, I've brought it to in a session and stuff just instantly goes and gets it because it's just such a game changer in terms if, especially if you're a guitar player. Well, yeah, there's a reason for why I've had MIDI built into so many guitars. I love it, but it's always been kind of disappointing. Yeah, this is the best. Like I've I've tried MIDI pickups before too, and there was just a, a lot more issues in terms of like it picking up wrong notes and like it just really like wonking out like bends and like sometimes the only thing with the, with this thing is it's it is limited to 
whatever the limitation of the software is. So like violins and stuff, you can't play like a like C1, you know, or something like that. It's not going to pick that sure. up. But yeah, it, it does get, it does get a little tougher when it comes to lower register stuff. Like it, but most of the time with strings and stuff like that, like I just play it an octave higher and then transpose it after it's like really easy problems to fix. So th- that has been great for me because now it's like when I write a riff, instead of me having to sit there and like, I'm okay at theory, but I'm not like insanely great where I can just like instantly be like, oh, this is what I did on piano. So I can now transpose that to guitar right away. I can just play the riff twice, you know, on guitar, real guitar and this thing. And this thing also works as a normal guitar too. So you, and it actually sounds pretty good. Interesting. Wow. Well, that looks really cool. Yeah, that's definitely a little gem for people if they want to get into doing that, doing realistic orchestration stuff. Yeah, that's pretty killer, man. Thank you. Well, I think this is a good place to end the podcast. We're kind of out of time. So I want to thank you very much for taking the time to hang out. It's been a pleasure, as always, to catch up, and congrats on everything. Awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on. Anytime, man. Anytime. Good luck with the corn thing. Thank you. (laughs) We'll see how it goes. Yeah. Looking forward to hearing it. Awesome. All right, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends, as well as post them to your Facebook and Instagram or any social media you use. Please tag me at Audio at URM Academy, and of course, tag our guests as well. I mean, they really do appreciate it. In addition... Do you have any questions for me about anything? Email them to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. And use the subject line, answer me, al. All right, then. Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.